1: My dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have.
0: And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Steven Ludwig, otherwise known as Stevo Luddy, as he goes by on social media has this aura of positivity that you're going to notice in today's conversation and can be seen throughout his content on social media. He's different than a lot of the guests that I've had on in the past, but he's also similar. He's different because he's young. He's 25 years old, and he's going to talk about some of the physical challenges he's had throughout his life, and how they've helped shape how he sees the world and his mindset. Unlike most of us, Steve-O has battled two different life-threatening diseases and endured a dozen orthopedic surgeries. So we talk about pain in this conversation. We talk about death. It goes from deep to light and back to deep as we explore his philosophy and how he thinks about the world. His most prominent physical deficiency is a leg length discrepancy of nine inches, which causes him to wear a distinctive nine inch lift on the bottom of his left shoe. And despite these hardships, Stevo still perseveres to play sports such as basketball, golf, tennis and snowboarding. Sports has certainly played a role in his identity, in his mindset, in his own belief in what's possible, and he leverages those stories and those experiences to inspire others. And he is certainly doing that. He has amassed over 4 million followers on TikTok, and he really cares about inspiring people that have challenges like him and those that don't and those that haven't experienced some of the challenges he's faced and we talk about it all of us are going to go through pain at some point in our life steve-o has certainly gone through his share of pain from a physical standpoint and i love his wisdom even though he's 25 he's super self-aware and reflective and i think he's just getting started so here Stevo steve-o luddy <laughs> steve thanks for coming on the podcast before we hit record you said i love sports and we started going down i could tell a sports rabbit hole that we were maybe never going to climb out of um, but i know kobe bryant has had a bit big influence on you i know you got to meet him when you were younger and it's interesting i know you also love golf uh, i just got a promotion from uh, the club i belong to where they said like Titleist, TaylorMade, all these golf co- golf ball companies run this promotion at the beginning of the golf year. And you can buy like three cases and get one free and you can personalize it. And so you can put a number on it and and something on the ball. And I actually put, um, 24 was the number that I chose. And I've never been like a lucky number guy, But I thought about 24 and I said, 24 hours in a day, that's kind of unique. There's something universal in there. Uh, 24 is a number that can be split up into pairs. You can do two, three, four, six, eight, twelve. 12. I facilitate a lot of retreats and 24, You can when you have 24 people, you can divide up the group into all kinds of different ways. And then the last thing I thought of was Kobe and just like the power of him changing from eight to 24, what that signal, uh, signaled and signified for him and a transition in his career. So I want you to talk about the mamba mentality and how that's guided you and shaped you and helped you uh, throughout your life up until now.
1: Yeah. And Brian, I know you said I was the youngest person you've had on here, Um, but the kids would say we're twinning. I actually have 24 on all my golf balls too. (laughs) I actually have an eight and then X 24 and then my social media tag, uh, Steve O'Bloody.
0: So I if anyone, if anyone finds your golf balls in, in the wilderness somewhere, they'll know exactly who, who shot it in the in the crap.
1: They'll know, but you won't find it out in the woods. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, yeah, uh Kobe Bryant's mama mentality and other athletes, any athletes, you watch it, you know, how they prepare. It goes way beyond the basketball court. And I think growing up, I kind of needed some sort of person to idolize, some sort of um rotation to to look at and and kind of go forward and model my mentality after Um, because when you when you go through the motions of um, going in and out of the hospital you kind of lose a sense of who you are and you need to find that person to look after and Kobe was that guy
0: what was the draw for you to Kobe
1: the draw was I mean you've you've been watching basketball for so long when he would score on someone, he would, you know, put his arms across his chest, look up at the crowd, and do that face, or you know, show his teeth. And I remember one time um, I played church league basketball growing up. You know, we had a carpet on the floor; it wasn't that serious, but to me, it meant everything. It's all it's what I marked down on my calendar. And um, I remember one game specifically. We'd wear this these little color codes on the top of our jersey, and we'd have to guard a player on the other team that would wear the same color code. And usually it was based on your height, right? And since I have a bone disease, I've always been a little bit shorter than my peers. And by little, I mean a lot. And the kid I was guarding on this particular night, I heard him whisper to a teammate, yo, like, look at this kid. He's got a big shoes. His arm is short. Like, I feel bad. You know, I should go easy on him. And I heard him. And I, and I turned to my buddies. And I was like, this kid's about to go easy on me. Like, I'm going to pull it. And then I, I walk up to my mom and sitting front row um, on the sidelines. And I go, Mom, watch this. Like First possession of the game, I'm going crazy on this kid. And they don't even have a three-point line because, you know, we're 12 years old. But I take the ball down the court and the first possession of the game, I pull up from 28 feet. Now, I missed the shot, but they knew that I meant business. And then the next possession, I went down and shot the same shot and made it. He still wasn't guarding me. Um, But by the end of the game, he was locked down. He was guarding me off ball the entire game. Um, And I think... I just embodied, I think that was the exact moment where I brought that Mamba mentality into sport for me. And it changed everything. Um, I, I instantly wanted to get into every single sport outside of basketball. I was playing baseball. Uh, I tried swimming. I almost drowned trying to do backstroke just because my anatomy doesn't work that way. <laughs> I play golf, like you said. Um, I even tried hockey, but we couldn't figure out how to put skates on my big shoe. Um, it was all about Um, competition for me and Kobe was competition he is if you looked up competition and a strong mentality in the dictionary a picture of Kobe Bryant will pull up
0: it's interesting because I love studying him and we obviously lost Mm. him lost him too soon and he was just starting Mm. to really share a lot of himself I think with the world whereas he had closed off I think in his playing career and it, it was fascinating when he retired because he did Mm -hmm. a lot of interviews and was really open uh, in a different way. And I think showed a different side to him.
1: What he was doing for the WNBA and for women's sports too. I mean, he, you know, he was a, he was a girl dad and I think his best years were ahead of him.
0: And he talked about curiosity and learning Mm and admitted some of his shortcomings when he was younger around leadership and how he communicated with Shaq and and some other people. Mm -hmm. So you saw growth in him that I think, as a basketball player, you couldn't see on the court. And Mm -hmm. I think about, as I'm listening to your story, I am not the same as you. I wouldn't put myself in your shoes, but where we are similar is I was like the shortest kid in my grade and Mm -hmm. basketball was my sport of choice. Mm -hmm. And so I like, remember my parents even saying to me at one point, like you could get like Mm -hmm. growth hormone injections. And, and I think I was probably like 12 when they came to me about this. And I remember going in their bedroom and, and saying to them, like, I like being small. Like, I, I, I don't mind it. It's not a uh, a detriment. Now, I didn't I didn't realize it, it It was a detriment when it came to my basketball career. Um, yeah, let's yeah. be honest. But there's I a point
1: where you realize.
0: Yeah, but I didn't see it as a detriment in my life. And I think that was the answer, actually, inside they were hoping for. Um, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, I I end up. I'm five six. Like I'm fine. Like it's not. It's not a big deal. Um, one of the things though I learned as I got older was that I had a chip on my shoulder because I was younger. I was scrappy. I was tenacious. Mm -hmm. All of the words. I was tough. Like the words that people would use to describe me and my nicknames that I got was like digger. Like I would dig (laughs) into the holes or gnat. Like I was a pest. And yeah. I, I embraced that when I was younger, but as I got older, I started to realize there were some downsides to that. And um, similar to Kobe, I think his mentality had some drawbacks as well when it came to being a teammate. And for me, right. I think I, I had this chip on my shoulder. And if I always led with that chip, it actually got me into trouble. and, and, uh, put me in the wrong direction. So I'm curious for you, you know, you have this upbringing where it's very much like, I'll show you, Hey, you're telling me I can't swim. Watch what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, it's very much like a thriver mentality and approach and competitive. Um, as you've gotten older, have you seen that, uh, be a drawback in any instances or any situations as well?
1: Absolutely. Actually, I'm I'm glad you brought this up. I feel like right now in my life, I'm at a point where, if you would put it in the perspective of Kobe's uh, timeline, I'm like, where Kobe retired. I'm starting to realize that, you know, maybe I I went too hard um, at on occasion growing up. I remember and I feel bad and me and my brother really tight now. But growing up, you know, he was the he was the brother to a cancer patient. And I bullied him in a way, but in a, in a competitive way, I just wanted him to be the brother that would go out and shoot hoops with me or compete in video games and all this stuff. And he was kind of laid back. He'd, he'd rather just show love and just kind of do his thing. And I remember just being really hard on him. And I just, and I think that was my escape. That was, that was, he was my punching bag that I needed to get my competitiveness out on. And I think growing past that, you know, getting through college and maturing and kind of seeing the world as a bigger place. um, I started to slow down and, really start showing love and compassion instead of just competitiveness.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned your brother, I think it was at age mm-hmm. seven where, uh, you know, he did a bone marrow transplant. Um, and so I imagine you all have a unique relationship. And I read that you all celebrate Brother's Day every yeah. year to, to signify that. Talk mm-hmm. us, Talk to us about Brother's Day and what that's like to celebrate with your brother and acknowledge the gift that he gave to you.
1: Yeah. Brother's day. I mean, it's, it's more magical than anything. It's, it's the most important day of the year for me. Um, It's December 28th is the day my brother saved my life. So back when I had leukemia, I had AML. It was an advanced adult version of it. And I was only six, seven years old and I had an 8% chance of living. And the last resort we went through chemo, we went through radiation therapy, You know, the whole nine. Um, I was throwing up blood every single day. There was um, a few day spans where I would just be unconscious. But every single day I would try to find strength. And we'll get through those stories a little later of how I did that and how I used sports to do that. But um, my brother's bone marrow um, procedure was only a 20% chance of working. Um, So on December 28th, you know, my brother, he took, I think, 100-something needles to the back. And, he, and he's such a laid back guy. He was just like, OK. And in fact, right after the surgery, he would always wear a Superman cape and he would ride around the halls of the hospital on a scooter with the Superman cape. And he was the only kid in the hospital that was allowed on a scooter just because that's who he was. He was just such a life form, um, such a gift. Um, and it really came to fruition um, in the physical world by saving my life um, on that day on December 28th. And to this day, we celebrate, you know, if we're at different points in our life, he's graduated from uh, App State University. He's a big boy. He's like 6'3", has a big old beard. His hairline's already going back. You know, he's he's laid back. He's a mountain man. And um, I'm more of the um, artsy kid, you know, long hair, um, trying to do the social media thing. So we're so different, but we are so connected. Um, And if we are in different places on in the country we'll give each other a long long call and just go over memories and uh i just love that kid so much
0: you mentioned him wearing the superman cape yeah i'm curious if you were to say that he has a superpower what would his superpower
1: be his superpower is just compassion and just being a raw human being um there's there's not a day where he i ever got any sort of um and this this might sound a little too poignant but he's never fake he He will always kind of say what he's feeling and he'll always try to make it, he'll always try to put a spin on it to sound compassionate and try to work for the person that he's communicating to.
0: And if you were to establish your superpower, what would it it be?
1: My superpower is my self-confidence, my ability to just completely and 100% wholeheartedly understand myself and believe in myself.
0: Where does that come from?
1: I think that just comes from the trials and tribulations. Um, if you spend enough time laying on a hospital bed and just staring at a clock, you you start to learn who you are, you know, from the inside out. Um, and then also I have such a unique physical body that when I am out in public, right, um, I have to endure countless people um, from all ages. I'm talking four-year-olds who are just curious to drunk, you know, 40-year-olds at a football game Pointing at my shoe and making comments. Um, Now, it's easier to hear it from a four-year-old who's just curious because I can just process that in my mind as, you know, just a curious four-year-old. But like a 40-year-old who's drunk and I'm with my friends, it's a little bit different. And I think just hearing that over and over throughout my entire life, I just kind of had to tell myself and embrace myself and just understand that I am who I am. You know, I have a big shoe. My arm is shorter than the other. I'm short. It is what it is. Um, If I can walk around with my head held high with a little bob on my head like Kobe would walk down the court, maybe I'd hear a little bit less remarks from people. Um, I feel like people can feel a confidence aura from you um, if you walk around and you and you present yourself like you are confident in yourself. People, you know, admire that. And that's that's who I want to be.
0: It's interesting a week ago, I took my kids to the mall and yeah. we were in the eatery and we we're eating and my son is seven and my daughter's six. And it's, it's interesting. Like we just did parent teacher conferences this morning. And so they're going through all the stuff for the first grader and everything, the kindergartner. And there's a big gap between kindergartners and first graders, which I didn't realize until mm-hmm. a couple of hours ago. When we were at the mall, there was a woman in a wheelchair, you know, Electronic wheelchair, like Mm -hmm. immobilized. She was with her family, um, and you know I could tell my kindergartner was staring at her Mm -hmm. over over my shoulder, Mm -hmm. and I know my son because I've been in these situations with him in the past. He knows he's like, he'll even say it's not appropriate to to stare, like Mm -hmm. that's not that's not kind. He he's learned that lesson somewhere. That's cool, but I'm curious for my daughter, the six year old. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice that you would give to me? And I'm going to ask you parenting advice Um, that you would give. Like I was trying to think of what's the right thing to do in this situation. As far as the messaging to her, I just left it alone. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I figured she'll learn it and she'll figure it out. But I wondered if there was a message that I could have delivered. That would be poignant in that moment. Um, Any thoughts on, on what message I might want to deliver to her in those situations?
1: Yeah, I think. I think people who have disabilities or may look different physically or look like they're challenged in any sort of facet of life, I think it's just natural human instinct to stare. Um, And I think some advice you could give is, you know, you could maybe present that person as being confident in themselves, like that person in the wheelchair they they understand their situation better than anyone else um just kind of explain to your daughter that maybe they are happy with their life because i think i think when children stare for the most part they might feel bad or they might just feel confused how how do they live like that like what is that like and i think the human experience is so interesting like we all experience life in a different in a different vision and i think People in wheelchairs, you know, people like me, um, they are just as happy. They just have to live it a different way. So I think just bringing that perspective to your to your daughter, I think would be good advice.
0: I've become friends with a guy named Kyle Maynard. Uh, Kyle was born a quadruple amputee. So mm-hmm. uh, below his knees and his elbows, uh, he doesn't have limbs. Um, he's also climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, was an all-state wrestler, MMA fighter. That's amazing. Uh, Kyle's one of the most inspiring people I've ever been around. And he's actually inspiring. That stuff's all very inspiring. But to me, when I'm around Kyle, I pick his brain around mindset. And the way he sees the world, and the way he interacts with the world is fascinating. And his mind is actually his superpower. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, he's someone who I've been fortunate to spend time with. I had a conversation with him about empathy once because I was very much of the opinion that empathy is a really great trait to have. Um, and he said a lot of people interact with him with empathy um, and they don't, he he uses a story of getting on an airplane and, you know, he's getting onto an airplane and they're saying, sir, you have to be in a wheelchair. And he's saying, I don't need a wheelchair. And they're like, no, 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 sir. Our policy is you need a wheelchair. And he's like, I don't, I, I, I walk through the whole airport without a wheelchair. I don't need a wheelchair. This guy climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Like yeah. he's, he's good. Yep. Um, And she's, she's like about to say it again. And he decides to like crawl over and hop in the chair in, in his seat. Like he gets on the plane without mm-hmm. the wheelchair. And his point was that a lot of people interact with him thinking that he needs something. Mm-hmm. And he is like, look, if I need something, I'll ask, I'll say, I'll speak up and say I need something. Don't assume that you know what I'm going through or that you've walked in my shoes. And so he made a a plea to me to shift from empathy because I said, okay, if it's not empathy, like I still want to be able to try to understand where someone's coming from. And he used a word that you actually used about your brother. He said, compassion. Mm. Compassion is beautiful. He said, but empathy in his opinion, gets people into trouble. I'm curious to hear you riff on the distinctions between empathy and compassion and what you've observed with your eyes over the years.
1: I absolutely love that and relate to it completely, especially even at airports. I've been asked if I need a wheelchair at an airport and I walk around just nice. And then I I was at a costume shop because I was doing this YouTube video for my girlfriend and the old lady, she was so sweet and nice, but I walk around as if I have two normal legs because I grew up right in my shoe. uh, It's nine inches for those who can't see. Um, People are always wondering how, how do you, how can, how do you learn how to walk? Right. They they don't understand the idea that my shoe grew with me. Um, So like at one point it was, you know, half an inch. And then it was, you know, three fourths of an inch, then one inch. So it grew with me and I learned to walk just like anyone else would. So I think people try to feel empathetic as if like, I don't, I'm less capable of walking or I'm less, and it's incredible how people may treat you if they're in that empathetic mode. Um, they kind of look down on you and I'm 25 years old and I actually look young in the face too. And I have a lot of hair. So every time I want to go, you know, buy some beer, I, I will easily get the question. You are not 21. Um, even though I'm, I try to carry myself even in those situations as a 30 year old. Like I try to talk a little bit older and I feel like it's not really fair, but I think the compassion aspect is just feeling someone is just on un- being understanding with them instead of putting some sort of stigma on them and like feeling like you could walk in their shoes and like, this is what I would do if I were you. I don't think that's fair at all.
0: Yeah. where I've landed on it and I'm still open to changing It's mm-hmm. like having empathetic curiosity. And so like, Mm. I want to understand where you're coming from. And the Mm. only way I'm going to understand is by being really curious. And Mm. so if I blend an empathy, a desire to feel uh, and understand what you're feeling, sympathy is the, I can feel what you're feeling. Empathy is trying to understand what you're feeling. And I think for a lot of people, they think that they're trying to understand what they're uh, feeling but instead they're actually just assuming and yes. they're assuming oh he needs the wheelchair mm-hmm. and they think they're being kind which their intentions are kind but they're lacking the curiosity and it would be really simple to just be like hey Stevo, do you need a wheelchair no okay you're good um, here's a
1: funny and- story too hey. sorry to cut you off yeah, but yeah go on we have something <laughs> it runs deep in our in our family at this point it's called the Stevo card so we so we kind of look at this sympathetic being or uh, empathetic being of people like wanting to help out. All right. And we take that and kind of use it to our advantage, you know, cause life is short and we want to have fun. So we call, we use something called the Steve-O card. Um, if there's a line that is too long right at the airport, we will pull the, I need a wheelchair <laughs> and skip the line. I mean, you know, unless, unless of course there are people that absolutely need it. Um, but we will use the SIBO card. If there's a long line for um, a basketball game, At you know, I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. there's a long line to the Dean Dome. We will get up front. And it is true in a way. I can't really stand for too long um, in one position because my, my hips are uneven. So it starts hurting, but we will skip the line and be like, Hey, you know, we have this kid who can't really stand for too long. Could we possibly bypass the line? And we call that the SIBO card. And we, it's kind of jokes to us. And some of my friends know about it too. Um, But we kind of take advantage of that, you know, because we like to play fun games.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about humor because I think – We've gone sort of deep, which is where I love to play. But mm. I always joke like you'll find me at a wedding. I'll either be in the corner having like a really deep conversation with someone, or on the dance floor making a fool. <laughs> <something>. Same, same. <laughs> so I, I'm. That's the intersection that I like to live at: the dance floor, having a couple of drinks and, and having fun, or or I'll be deep in conversation with someone. So let's go to humor. How has humor helped shape uh, the way you interact with the world?
1: Yeah, I think anyone who goes through any sort of unusual circumstance uses humor to a certain, you know, um, aspect, because you, you need to find different ways to contextualize your environment around you. And I think um, a my number one way of doing that was competitiveness growing up, but I also used humor, Um, I would always try to lighten up the room. Um, Being in a hospital room and having countless nurses coming in and out, there's you have to come up with jokes to lighten up the nurse's mood so they can lighten up your parents. Right. So it's, it's just something that's always been present. And I think it's, it it kind of had to be. Um, And fortunately I grew up with a family that is very jovial. Um, They will always be the first to try to crack jokes, try to make me laugh. So I think growing up, I always wanted to be like that and always wanted to be the, you know, the person that could make everyone else laugh in a room.
0: You've talked about hospitals, surgeries, pain um, is something that
1: every human
0: experiences if they live long enough. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be mental, Um, but pain is a part of life. Your relationship with pain um, started at a very young age. Uh, I think you're three years old uh, where you start to have to make decisions (laughs) around how much pain is too much and Right. You know, what, do, what do I want to endure and, and what maybe don't I want to endure? Uh, what is your relationship with pain?
1: My relationship with pain. I love my relationship with pain. It It's saved my life many times. Um, I think I'm extremely, extremely in tune with my body. And it's led to both positive and negative things. Um, I have something called somatic PTSD. Um, it's where if I were to develop a rash on my arm, let's say. Um, instead of me thinking that something's wrong, my brain will think something's wrong. Like not me as a soul, but like I could say out loud, I'm probably fine. This is just a small rash, but the rash will actually turn, make, become bigger because my body is so in tune with, if something is wrong, you need to see a doctor because I've lived in and out of the hospital. But as you mentioned, um, I, I encountered pain for the first time when I was three years old, this is where it all started. I was, I had a bone leg lengthening surgery, where they, and it's kind of tough to talk about a little bit, but they inserted three large metal rods into my femur, breaking it in three different places. And then every single day, uh, morning and night, they would crank these rods ever so slowly to break the leg and promote growth, just microscopically. And over the course of eight months, it grew three inches, my left leg. And I was three inches, or I was three years old, and for the first time, my legs were equal length. Um, it's safe to say I've never did that again. Um, my, my boot is now nine inches. Um, the procedure, if you look it up now, it, it, it's technically a medieval torture device. It's it's considered malpractice. The external fixator, where they would crank it. Now they have internal fixators, where it's remote access. Um, you can actually uh, lengthen the leg using technology, which, which I think is absolutely incredible. But when people ask me, oh, would you consider, you know, having another leg lengthening? I say, well, no, I'd have to relearn how to walk. Like, what's what's the point of that? The, the big shoe works for me. I just have to be a little bit more careful, you know, walking on rocks and then grassy patches where I can't see uh, ditches. But my, my relationship with pain is extremely important to me. And I've always said that pain is subjective to every single human being on this planet. Um if I were to have a procedure tomorrow it would go a lot different than if you were to have a procedure tomorrow. You know our mental uh how we would go about it mentally. How worried we'd be about it. What what do we expect? You know, I don't I don't even I I refuse to take pain meds now. I I will take a couple of ibuprofens after major arm surgery because I hate not having that control. I like, I like harnessing and feeling that pain because then I can, so right after surgery, right, you have an X amount of pain, let's say 10 pain. And then the next day you feel nine pain. That feels good to me because I'm getting better. If you're on pain meds, you feel, you know, four pain. And then the next day, four pain, the next day, four, you don't know you're getting better. You just feel like you're in this sort of void where you're trapped and you start feeling bad about your situation. You feel like you're not going anywhere. You feel like, you know, this is just awful. But if you feel progress, you know, even from the 10 scale pain to nine scale pain, nine scale pain's way worse than four, but at least you're getting better. And I've always loved that relationship. It's almost like a game. I've made it competitive. I wanted to feel better. And that's just how I went about it.
0: You mentioned going to North Carolina for college. Mm. And you're sipping a North Carolina uh, <laughs> Yeti or or, yeah. or some sort of
1: coffee yeah Yeti course. cup.
0: Yeah. If we take you from graduation day, uh, were you like 22 when you graduated? How old? Yes. Sir. Right. So let's go three years ago. You mentioned progress and growth. I remember when I graduated college. Uh, <laughs> my first year out of college was awful. Like my transition <laughs> out of college was terrible. And then I think about, okay, over the next couple of years, I met uh, my now wife. I found mm-hmm. my career and and sort of my passion. and And so those were like three tough years for me. Mm-hmm. I was pretty lost, but I also, while I was lost, did a lot of searching and and found some pretty amazing things. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering for you, how have you progressed since you graduated from college?
1: Graduation was an extremely interesting time for me. Um, it was literally what right when COVID happened. So it was an extreme, you know, uh, step back. It, it, the job industry wasn't really accepting uh, my peers. I, now, listen, okay, let me start over here. So I kind of knew from a young age that I didn't want to get into a nine to five career. Um, I always wanted to be a creative, an artist of sorts. Um, I gave speeches in high school, middle school. I love painting. I love drawing and expressing myself. And uh, I always saw myself as a personality. uh, And I wanted to get into sports at a young age. I wanted to go to Clemson and be like a sports analyst. Um, But I think through college, I realized that that was too competitive. And I think through college, I realized a lot of things were too competitive and I just wanted to embody my own brand. And I think with COVID uh, intersecting my graduation, it really changed and made people take a step back and like realize kind of what life is. I mean, that was really an interesting time. Like if you go back to that day, I know we look back and we're just like, oh, that was a weird time, but it really was, um, especially for a college graduate. And I think um, the social media app, TikTok, uh, just blown up. And my friends were suggesting to me, yo, you should try, you know, this TikTok app, right? You know, share your, share your story to the world, and be inspirational, like you always wanted to be. And at first, you know, I was kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's too childish for me because I was, you know, just a normal one Instagram post a year kind of guy. But, um, I, I went into TikTok with open arms and I shared my story even with my first post as if, you know, anyone in the world can see it and it and it blew up. And I think um, graduating college and just having that chip on my shoulder uh, gave me the confidence to do that because, you know, I made it this far. I wasn't even supposed to go to college. I remember my doctors saying that it's possible that I wouldn't be able to drive um, a car. And that was my goal at one point was just to get behind the wheel. And then my goal is to make it to college. And now my goal is to be an inspiration to as many people as I can. Um. So I just take it step by step, and I think college was just a great overall experience for me, just socially, and just having a great time.
0: You have four plus million TikTok followers. I'm not on TikTok, but I, <laughs> I can do math. I think that's a a decent following. What do you think of the word influencer when when people say, "Oh, he's a, a an influencer, or social mm-hmm. media influencer"? How does that even land with you?
1: Man, that stigma and that definition changes, I feel like every day. It's such an interesting industry, even for someone who doesn't know it or understand it, or maybe it's too new. It's so interesting just to like to delve into it and learn about the innuendos and the and the backend stuff that goes into promotion and, and brand deals and the money-making stuff that goes into social media. Now I got into it for the inspiration aspect like i literally just wanted to share my story with the world i didn't think of it as a career at all i actually thought of it as a stepping stone to get into speaking um or back into speaking but then they started monetizing it and then i realized that you know this is this is a possible career and then i just kept amassing followers um and that like you said i'm over four million which is still way over my head i don't understand what that means actually like i don't know what that means it's just absolutely incredible that I have the opportunity, you know, to reach 4 million people when, you know, 20 years ago, this wouldn't be possible at all. It's just, it's just crazy to me on a just world scale that this is, that this is actually available for people to use.
0: You mentioned that you used to do motivational speaking in high school. right? Do you not do that anymore? Is that not something you want to do? Is that something that you enjoy doing um yeah where where are you on the motivational speaking stuff
1: yeah so the motivational speaking is something that i i enjoy doing um and i gave speeches uh to companies to uh elementary schools to churches to summer camps um and i enjoyed it you know it's it's the real human interaction uh between the audience and the speaker but my my only issue with it was uh what we talked about with uh sympathy earlier I think people in the audience kind of just felt bad for me. Um, and I would share my story, right? And I would just go point to point. And, you know, I went through this. I went through this. This is what I learned. I went through this. This is what I learned. I think social media is a lot more powerful because I can post a video of me playing basketball, right? And it takes 15 seconds. It actually works with kids' attention spans because I don't – I put myself in a kid's shoe, um, you know, a twelve-year-old shoot. I'm. I. I don't want to go to a speech, respectfully. You know, I'm. I'm gonna be like, Dad, I don't want to go to this. You know, I'd rather play on my my phone. That's what the average twelve-year-old saying. So I think it's just more impactful um, to be on social media, just be able to post a 15-second video on on TikTok of me playing basketball, and then allow the audience, of that twelve-year-old, to kind of to look at you know, my unique body and me shooting a basketball and say to themselves and empower themselves to interpret that footage and just being like, wow, this kid, not only is he shooting basketball, the big shoe, short arm, five foot, he's also posting it for millions of people to see, like with no regard, like he does it confidently. I can go out and play basketball instead of me just kind of preaching to, to people. I'm just kind of being that body um, where you can interpret and, and become whatever you want to become.
0: Yeah, there's another thought there too. I am I know a lot of motivational speakers and I mm-hmm. think one of the other issues with that industry is that they become a road show and they say the same mm-hmm. thing every single day and it's a right. speech and it's a stump speech. Your content is ever-changing, mm-hmm. it's unique, it's constantly evolving. You know, you have a thought around assumptions. I'm gonna go talk about assumptions and mm-hmm. you can do it in bursts. But you're, you're talking about something else that I, I, I want to flag, which is Mm -hmm. attention span. And Mm -hmm. I've done over 300 some episodes. You are one Mm -hmm. of the most present people I've spoken to. And yeah. And it's interesting because I think there's this misconception that, you know, younger people don't have any attention span because of their phones. And, And I'm at restaurants and I see the people that are really struggling with the ability to handle a phone. I actually think it's a lot of older people who Mm -hmm. um, haven't been brought up with um, their phone being quote unquote smart. And, and so I'm listening to you and I'm noticing, I think you're, I think you're very present. And um, I'm wondering though, when you bring up something like PTSD and Mm -hmm. pain, um, I think of anxiety and, and I think of how that, can impact people who have gone through trauma in their, in their life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering about being present, um, how that works for you. Um, you also are connected to your phone for a means of income. So Mm -hmm. part of you has to always be quote unquote on and trying to use the phone Mm to, to, as a microphone. And so there's this push pull that I have in talking to you where I'm curious about anxiety, but I'm noticing your capacity to be present, And I'm just wondering about that. And the last thing I'll say, I mentioned Kyle Maynard earlier. I've never been around someone as present as he is. Mm -hmm. And he's an awful planner. Like if you tell him, (laughs) Hey, we're going to have you do X, Y, and Z next week. If he has an opportunity to do something that is more exciting and interesting, like he's like, F it, Uh, I'm going to go live my life and I'm going to go do this thing. And so Um, I've been around him and I'm thinking about him during this conversation. So it's just coming up and I'm just, I'm curious about being present anxiety, the push pull of those, the dynamic of, of those at play for you and, Mm -hmm. and how you, um, figure out when to be present and, and how anxiety also plays a role in in your world.
1: I think, I think, I think people's curiosity about me is rubbed off on me because I'm so curious about everyone, every conversation I have. I feel like I can learn something. Um, so that's just where that comes from. Um, now I'm kind of like Maynard in that way. Like I, I take life day by day. It kind of reduces that anxiety. Cause, um, at the end of the day, if, if I look five years ahead, it's, it's almost impossible. You, you get that question a ton, uh, growing up or, you know, when you're looking for jobs, when you're in college, a lot of teachers ask that, where do you see yourself in five years? that doesn't register with me at all, like zero amounts. I, I want to know what I'm doing tomorrow because that's kind of how I grew up. You know, when you're in a hospital bed, you, no doctor's ever going to ask, what are you doing in five years? Because that's disrespectful almost. Um, So I've just kind of taken my life day by day. And with anxiety days, I, I accept, I've I had to learn how to accept it, especially getting into work life. I think it's important that I, I don't, um, shame myself or, um, because mental stability is important. If, if I'm having a day where I'm anxious about my body or anxious about my situation, uh, I will give that day to myself because it is my life. And, and I believe that if you take that day to yourself, you can, you can be two times better tomorrow to make up for it. That's up to you again, like your day-to-day life is completely in your control. And I think more people need to realize that. Um, but yeah, no, I I love me and Vader get would get along quite well.
0: The mental health, I just watched a video about this. I think it's incredible that people are are destigmatizing mental health. And I think mm-hmm. it's incredible that we are more compassionate when people are depressed or going through PTSD or having manic episodes, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And I have a concern, which is I've spent a lot of time on college campuses and we are now labeling everything as depression or anxiety. It's like,
1: which is counterproductive.
0: It's counterproductive. Like life's going to be hard. There's going to be pain. You know, people are going to break up with you. People are going to do <clears throat> something that's not cool. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to get fired. You're going to get laid off. Like, these are all things that we humans experience. And I worry about resilience. And so on one hand, I love that mental health is being brought to the forefront. On the other hand, like we are having Suicide, we're still having depression, like we're still seeing it, even though we're destigmatizing it. And mm-hmm. so I just look at all right, well, what's the best possible solution here? And and I'm not sure, I don't have an answer, but I, I I think it's an important thing. Yes, take a mental health day. And sometimes you do have to just go to work and you do have to do things yeah. when you're not feeling up to it. And I don't know where those lines are. And I can't assume that I know where other people's lines are, Mm -hmm. but I will say there's concern for me as a society Mm -hmm. about, you know, the wrong message, which is, you know, saying it's okay to not be okay is a good phrase. And there's more to it. Like there are going to be days where you're not okay. And, and you still need to act and like, Depression has to do with despair and the inability to act. And being depressed is very different than being sad. And we need those distinctions to function in our society.
1: And I think the line is almost being blurred too much. And people people always take advantage of something that can get them out of working, you know? And, you know, I'm a, I am consider myself a hard worker and it, and it makes me sad because people who have anxiety, but are kind of shortcutted by people who claim they have, have anxiety. And, and again, I have no jurisdiction to, you know, point out and say that person's not having, or this person isn't, but there's, it's interesting if there is such a correlation between, you know, cell phone use or social media and the anxiety, like, is that the problem? We don't know, you know, we're just people we, we can just, you know, theorize or whatever, but it, it, it is not a good thing that people use anxiety as an excuse. I see it more so as anxiety is a thing that you have to deal with, you know, but the sun will rise tomorrow and you will have to get up because um, when you get knocked down, you have to get up and not only get up, but, you know, be able to score the game winning basket. Like, that's just how it is. Um, that's how I see it.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the sun rising and I did not have trauma in my childhood. I was healthy, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. I grew up in just an amazing environment and consider myself very privileged. I don't have Mm -hmm. a problem with that word for me. I, I absolutely grew up with, with privilege. And, Mm -hmm. and yet when people ask me what my biggest fear is, it's very, very easy answer and it's death. Mm -hmm. And as mm. someone who has looked death in the eye, which you have, and mm-hmm. have been told, "Hey, like you're more likely gonna die than than you are gonna survive," like I haven't had that happen yet in my life, mm. um, and I'm I'm amazed by people that aren't afraid of death. I am in awe of them, and I don't have a lot of panic. Like it's not that fear doesn't stop me from getting on an airplane or putting myself at
1: risk or it's just a daunting force. Like it's, it's there, it's coming eventually. And that's, is that what's scary?
0: Yeah. I think, well, I think I know it's going to happen. Right. And I don't know what's going to happen after that. And Mm -hmm. for me, Mm -hmm. I feel like, okay, I know I can get through hard things. I know I can find my way, but I, the unknown of nothingness scares Mm -hmm. the shit out of me, man. And like, I it is the thing like late at night two nights ago I remember I'm just staring up the ceiling and I'm wondering like man I re- I'll give you a quick quick story
1: yeah go for <laughs> this it. came
0: into my head earlier as you're talking about like lines and and wheelchairs mm-hmm. uh, I remember when I was probably eight years old it's one of my earliest memories going into my parents' bedroom at night and saying mom and dad is there no Disney World when you die. and and for some reason that memory like sticks which is like oh when you die like there's not this magic there's no magical place and this speaks to faith and what your beliefs are and your convictions are and i think i'm unsure about all that and so it is something that yeah like it's an easy one i'm not afraid to speak i'm not afraid of like getting sick or um, heights. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. like them, but I'm not afraid of them. And, and yeah, so you have a unique perspective because you've been told, Hey, you're more likely going to die than live (laughs) multiple times, man. And so I would imagine your, your relationship with death is probably different than mine. Um, So I I'd love to learn from you so that, um, maybe this fear can can be reduced a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think again, it's it kind of goes back to me not even looking five years ahead, let alone X amount of years ahead. Now I have a bone disorder called Mafushi's syndrome, and I was actually diagnosed Mafushi's uh, three or excuse me, four or five years ago. God, time has been moving fast since I turned like twenty three. But um, around the age of 20, I was re-diagnosed with Mifushi's from this bone disease called Alie's disease. Alie's disease was you know, not prevalent, but more prevalent than Mifushi syndrome, which has only been diagnosed 250 times ever. Um, Now, the distinction between Mifushi's and Alie's disease is I developed these little blood vessel clots or whatever. Listen, I'm not a doctor. I don't know all these big words, but they're called hemangiomas. Now, these hemangiomas um, can turn cancerous at any point. So up until the age of 20, I just had a bone disease plus leukemia, plus thyroid cancer, plus graft versus host, plus, you know, 12 surgeries, right? But after Mifushi syndrome, the equation kind of changed. Mifushi syndrome said that these encodromas um, can turn cancerous. So it kind of gave... A reason. It was like, oh, that's why I've had so many cancers. That's why I've had leukemia and thyroid cancer and graft. Like it makes more sense now, right? It's like my book opened up when the doctor told me that I, I, I burst into tears, but not only because I had a revelation of who I am, but also I had a revelation of, wait a second, if these little things can turn cancers at any moment, and I've already had two or three, does that mean I can have more? And the doctor said, steve you've been through too much we're gonna pray that you don't so it's 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 up in the air like tomorrow you know i could have something and it goes back to that somatic ptsd anxiety that i have if i have a rash my brain is like is this cancer i can say out loud it's it's just a rash like it's fine but on the inside i have to have that guard up and i think that internal guard is it kind of represents that fear in in death and not being um it's just your your will to survive is stronger than your your fear for death and i kind of just trust that um and i look at life day to day and i just trust that you know i life is good right now i don't have to worry about death until it comes
0: in your intake form <laughs> i ask you know do you have any books or anything that we should promote and i think you in your humorous, lighthearted, self-deprecating <laughs> way said, yeah, maybe in 30 years. And, <laughs> and I, I'm wondering if that ability to just say, I'm going to take this day by day while it helps you survive um, and and not focus as much on death. I'm wondering if there's a downside <clears throat> to that, where it's like, dude, Steve-O man, like you could write a book tomorrow. If you start, you know, tomorrow and Mm -hmm. say, Hey, by the end of 2023, I'm going to have a book. I would put money behind the fact that it's probably going to happen. Right. And so I'm wondering if your inability to go beyond tomorrow, if there's a downside that comes with that as well.
1: hundred percent. I think that's my biggest, uh, my biggest issue in my friend now is just my inability to like say, okay, let's write a book. It'll be done, you know, in a month because I would love to do that. Like, that sounds like a great idea. And you know what? It sounds like I could do it. I could start tomorrow. But the reality is, I think because of my past, I think subconsciously, I just enjoy moments more than planning for the future. Because if I start writing, I know that I'll have to be writing in a month or so. And it's I think just internally, that idea doesn't click with me yet. I don't think I'm mature enough yet. Um, I'm 25. I still like hanging out with my friends. I value that tremendously. I value, you know, uh, growing my social media. I I value my girlfriend, my new girlfriend. I value my family. And I think just like little moments, like little comedic moments of like, you know, just day to day stuff, like small little things. I enjoy that so much right now in my life that I'm just kind of in. I think the waiting game is my biggest crook in my life right now. But I think eventually, I will get to a point in maturity where I want to start a business like a big one. And I want to represent people with disabilities in a bigger way, you know, put myself in corporation mode and I want to write a book. And I think that day will come. I think I have that in me.
0: Yeah. We had a podcast guest, Josh Basils, his name. uh, And Josh was normal, healthy kid, Mm -hmm. uh, was going to play division three tennis uh, that summer, went to the beach, boogie boarding, uh hit a wave, paralyzed, bam, you know, serious paralyzed, an electric chair, goes on to college, then goes on to law school and finishes law school and now represents people and changes uh laws for people with disabilities. And yeah. That's and awesome. like Josh it's interesting because I'm listening to you. I'm thinking about my book that I wrote, which is all Mm -hmm. about your preparation mindset and your performance mindset being different. And we can come back to Kobe. I need to give that a read. Yeah, I'll send you a copy. And thank um, you. you. And like Kobe, what made Kobe great was that he was humble in preparation. He was curious. Mm -hmm. He was going to learn. He was going to take information from anywhere he could. He's going to wake up at five in the morning and train. But when he got on the floor, he wasn't humble. He was arrogant. And he had this you you've, you said your superpower is like confidence. He mm-hmm. had next level confidence, which I would argue is Super an arrogance, brilliant. which is I'm the Mamba. I'm a, uh, I'm a killer. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm the black mama. I'm the most dangerous, baddest dude on the planet. Mm-hmm. And he played like that. And he played with that swagger and that chip on his shoulder, but then the game's over. He's going to go watch film and get better and improve. And one of the shifts that I talk about is being future minded in preparation and present in performance. Mm-hmm. And I think you can tap into that because mm-hmm. We've said today, you've got some future. The anxiety is actually a future way of thinking typically. Um, And then you've got this ability to be where your feet are and be present um, with what you're doing. And so if you study like elite performance, it often involves this polarity of humble in preparation, but arrogant in performance, selfish in preparation, taking care of everything you need for yourself, but then being in service and being selfless in performance, which you've talked about. You love Mm -hmm. social media because you can make an impact on people in a really profound way and meet them where they are. So I have these shifts that I talk about, but the future one and present one, we always hear be present, be present, be present. I would argue you ain't starting that business if you're not visualizing and, and envisioning what it's going to be. You're not going to write the book unless you actually think about, okay, when do I want to do this by and, and what does it look like? You need to focus on the future and the execution needs to be in the present. And so that, that back and forth, I think as a society, we say, be selfless. We say, be humble. Mm-hmm. We say, um, you know be present. We say these things and we miss that there's this other side of the coin that you also need to get to where you want to go.
1: Right. No, a hundred percent. You, I mean, you are right on the nail. I, I mean, I, I think that what I'm doing is comfortable, right? I think that's the reason why I have a hard time thinking about the future. I think also being comfortable is, is nice. And I think from a kid who had to go through so much growing up, that being comfortable is just, I'm basking in it. You know, I'm laying back in the flowers and the comfortability, right? Right. Um, but one of those
0: shifts is uncomfortable in preparation and comfortable in performance.
1: There you go. Yeah. So I, but I do enjoy being uncomfortable. That's why I am confident in myself. And you know what? I'll, I'll write a couple pages tonight for you, that's um, awesome. but I do like being uncomfortable. You know, that's why I would try new sports and I would try to be not only try these sports, but be better than everyone I knew. Yeah. Sports.
0: The beauty of the shifts, I think all of us have it inside of us, but we don't always Mm -hmm. focus on when we need to be one way and when we need to be another way. You actually give a story earlier, like, frick it, give me the pain medicine when I get hurt. Like, I don't want to be uncomfortable. (laughs) But you said, I feel like I can grow if I'm Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and I know the path and I know the trajectory so that I will then be comfortable. And so that's Mm -hmm. a a good example of the polarity. and. Uh, so I, I I can't wait to see you write the book whenever it does. And if I can be helpful, you'll let me know. Um, yeah. but Steve, man, like we could talk for hours, and oh, we uh, could and like i I respect the hell out of you. Um, I think that mind of yours is spectacular. And I think that mind of yours is going to continue to create and and do incredible things. Um, Obviously, social media plays a big role in your world. Um, Let us know where we can find you on TikTok, Instagram, and then you have a website. So uh, if people want to follow you, find you, stay connected to you, where's the best place for them to do that?
1: Yeah, you can uh, find me at Steve-O Luddy on all platforms. So growing up, my name is Steven, but everyone, even my mama and my dad called me Steve-O. So we went with Steve-O Luddy on all platforms, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Um, I just kind of share my perspective on the world and try to make an impact on people's lives to become, you know, the best version of themselves.
0: It's funny. We're similar, but then we're different. So like Instagram, TikTok, don't do it for me. Uh, <laughs> And I have no, nowhere near the following Steve O's. Do you like up. Twitter?
1: I like Twitter. So
0: I'm yeah, a Twitter Yeah, you're guy. A talking head.
1: I, I like Twitter too. <laughs> Twitter's my favorite, actually. actually. Really? Yes, so, yes.
0: Twitter, I'm at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn is the other place that I actually enjoy, which awesome. is at Brian Levinson. Uh, people can listen to all these conversations. We talked about Josh Basil in this conversation, Kyle Maynard in this conversation. You can find those at strongskills.co slash podcast. And then there's one more thing that I was, I just wanted to, learn from you is I there's probably a part of me that Instagram and TikTok, I'm, I'm Facebook to a certain extent as well. There's probably some fear in there, or there's something that causes me not to go toward those types of platforms. And it might have to do with like vulnerability and it might have to do with a desire to share what I'm learning, but not share my full self. If I'm being Mm. honest, like I love the podcast because it's not just me talking, it's me learning with you. And I actually find this platform probably to be my favorite because I get to learn while I'm connecting with a human and, and getting to know you, but advice for people that, may not be willing to put themselves out there. You said, hey, yeah, like I was a one Instagram guy a year. Um, yeah. And then I found TikTok and uh, you're being very vulnerable. You're letting people into your relationship with your girlfriend and your family yeah. and your friends yeah. and you're opening yourself up. And I think the last thing I'll say, and then I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be famous. Like I don't find value in fame. It's I don't, not that cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't desire like... <clears throat> being at dinner and and someone coming up to me and wanting an autograph and I don't really like I think there's more downside than upside for my life when it comes to fame um and so it might have something to do with that but like on Twitter I'd be down to have a million followers I'd be really sweet I think it'd be good it'd be helpful for me um so I I don't know what's going on there but I haven't felt the desire to put myself out there on Instagram or on TikTok or on Facebook to a certain extent. Um for you, you have leaned into some of those platforms where you are really sharing your full self. Um why and and what has that been like for you?
1: Listen, we are the same. I would and I've been saying this since I was young. I'd rather have a million followers on Twitter than anywhere else. Just because I feel like it's an ongoing conversation, right? You can like spark new ideas on there and i'm not saying you can't do that on tiktok instagram but i feel like on tiktok instagram you more so have the stigma of like once you put yourself out there you are saying i am that guy like you're almost being like selfish or like egotistical you come off that way you almost have to i mean you're putting your phone down and recording yourself that is almost like I don't know. It's just it's just so different energy that comes off on TikTok and Instagram, I think, than Twitter. Um, But like you said, being famous is not cool. I promise you, Um, especially with a physical body that looks so different. I'm that guy that's out in public. And when people see me, it's not is that that guy? Right. It's that has to be him. I've never seen a shoe like that ever or an arm like that ever. Um, and I got like this unique hair, even like people know it's me. And then they take pictures of me sometimes or with me, or they have signed autograph. And I'm like, I am just a normal kid living in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Like, it's so interesting that it's opened so many opportunities, yet it's such a dramatic life change for me. Um, and I, and I'm getting used to it and I'm learning and it's exciting. And for a guy who takes it day by day, it's, it's cool. Um, But yeah, no, I I absolutely love this conversation and um, maybe I can get right on Twitter like you.
0: (laughs) I think we can help each other here. You said you're going to commit to writing a little bit tonight. Yes, sir. Here's what I'm going to do. I've got this amazing studio that I record this podcast from, which is actually my closet. And uh, and so I'm being sarcastic. It's this big. (laughs) I thought you had another studio. No, this is it, man. This is where all the magic happens. I like it. So here's what I'm going to do. I just came up with this idea. I am going to share my studio with my audience and okay. I will give a tour, like a Cribs MTV Cribs tour of the studio and I'll put it out on social. So you'll do I some like writing. That. I'll give a tour of the podcast um, studio. Which okay. Is, and then we shake
1: <laughs> hands at the end.
0: <laughs> and then we should get Like I'm literally, I know we're basketball <laughs> guys. So my wingspan, which is five, six, I've measured it. Um, it's the same as my height. My wife's wingspan is three inches longer than her body so she has a lot of basketball potential which is my which wingspan is
1: weird yeah you, know? Yours is you different. can't really calculate mine <laughs>
0: Yours is different, but i'm doing this because my wingspan is actually like the 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 width of the whole whole closet wow
1: that's so, incredible that's it um you need upgrade
0: I need an upgrade. You're gonna help me do it, um, Steve. Oh man, this has been a blast. I can't wait to see what you do tomorrow and what you do five years from now and ten years from now as well. Appreciate you. Man. And I just appreciate, man. I think you're you're, you're positive, deep. but you're not uh, toxic and naive with your positivity. I think you're real about sharing. Uh, struggles and challenges and um you know i'm sure there are parts of your life that are not all glamorous and Mm -hmm. and are, are scary and so uh thanks for coming on the podcast and uh really excited to get to know you better over the years as well
1: absolutely brian i appreciate you having me on this was a great opportunity and i love this conversation thank you for listening to
0: intentional performers with brian levinson here is this week's episode jam.
1: My relationship with pain is extremely important to me. And I've always said that pain is subjective to every single human being on this planet. Um, if I were to have a procedure tomorrow, it would go a lot different than if you were to have a procedure tomorrow. You know, our mental, uh, how we would go about it mentally, how worried we'd be about it, what, what do we expect, you know? I don't I don't even I, I refuse to take pain meds now. I I will take a couple of ibuprofens after major arm surgery because I hate not having that control. I like I like harnessing and feeling that pain because then I can so right after surgery, right, you have an X amount of pain. You have, let's say 10 pain. And then the next day you feel 9 pain. That feels good to me because I'm getting better. If you're on pain meds, you feel, you know, 4 pain. And then the next day, four pain, the next day, four, you don't know you're getting better. You just feel like you're in this sort of void where you're trapped and you start feeling bad about your situation. You feel like you're not going anywhere. You feel like, you know, this is just awful. But if you feel progress, you know, even from the 10 scale pain to nine scale pain, nine scale pain is way worse than four, but at least you're getting better.